Have you ever done something that you look back over and you thought, wow, that was kind of rash? And you, with the benefit of hindsight, you think, I wish I would have done something a little bit different. I wish I would have made this decision, or I wish I would have responded with these words instead of those. And we have the benefit of hindsight. We use it to learn, or we should. And hopefully, when we encounter that situation again, we don't make the same mistakes. We don't make decisions the same way. But often, we make our decisions kind of on autopilot, right? It's whatever happens, happens, and whatever we respond is what's within our heart. The process of becoming better at our snap judgments, our snap decisions, is the process of growing in wisdom. It's a skill. It takes time as you exercise discernment and you have experience within life that you can be able to make better, more wise decisions. Saul could have benefited from hindsight. We have watched slowly the downfall of Saul as he continues to make one bad decision after another. And it seems that if Saul would have just taken a moment and reflected on his actions and thought about his decisions, perhaps he wouldn't have continued that downward slide. But what we find is that Saul's decision-making is sort of a a hodgepodge of his own creative ideas baptized in a thin veneer of religion. Today we get a behind-the-scenes look at the action of last week's text. And there we saw Jonathan act in bold faith with Saul and the rest of Israel playing catch-up, mostly wasting precious time by pretending to need or rely upon God. And it turns out that as the fighting continues amid all the panic, Saul managed to say some pretty stupid things. Saul managed to say things that troubled not only Israel, but his own household. And you see, you're apt to fall into such problems when you only have a surface-level piety that doesn't really reverence God and His Word. It takes the things of God, it uses them, but it doesn't understand why it is. For it's in those moments that you don't have time to deliberate. When the heat of the battle is upon you and you have to make snap decisions and you have to say things, it's in those moments that you need to rely on wisdom. And Saul doesn't seem to have that store of wisdom to rely on. And so he makes these rash oaths that lead to so much trouble. Saul uses these means. So as we turn to 1 Samuel, beginning verse 24, I want you to notice how foolish it is to try to manipulate God. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, the people with the oath. 
So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thumim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. And then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went their own way. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger was Michael. 
And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Ahimez. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner the father of Abner. They were hardy against the Philistines all the days. And when any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we give you thanks for this, your word. And we would have eyes to see and hearts that understand and ears that hear. Father, give us these things so that we may behold wonders out of your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name and all men. Saul's brings trouble to Israel by his rash oaths. In verse 24, he says, Cursed be the man who eats food until evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. And as the situation unfolds, we realize that Jonathan was not there when Saul gave this charge. Now, remember Bax, Jonathan had left with his armor bearer to go to the Philistine garrison to, to start trouble. But the rest of the army and Saul were over here. And it may be that what before they rallied to go with Jonathan, Saul lays this charge upon the people of Israel. But as the fighting continues, Jonathan has no knowledge of this oath. And as they enter the forest with the Philistines on the run, he finds honey. Israel is to be a land dripping with milk and honey. And so he takes of his staff and he reaches out and he takes some of the honey and immediately he's refreshed. But the people over and over again, it tells us that they are faint. In verse 28, and the people were faint. And again in verse 31, and the people were very faint. The people are suffering. And when... Jonathan takes from that honeycomb and they respond to him, Your father laid a charge on all of us not to eat any food. Jonathan says this in verse 29, My father has troubled the land. So what do the people do? They begin to pounce on the food. And that imagery is intentional. They are bestial. They're acting like animals now. They are not properly slaughtering the meat and allowing the blood to drain out. Remember, the life is in the blood. They are needlessly eating, sacrificing the lives of these animals, showing their bestial, that they are pouncing on the food, eating it with their blood. And this, it's in these moments that a military needs, absolutely needs order and discipline. You can imagine An army flush with victory. How could you control them? How could you restrain them? This is why armies drill. This is why they instill discipline for moments like this. So they can speak to their... And and the authority of the commanders is listened to. But in, in their haste, they are overcome with hunger. And they sin by eating the meat with the blood in its... It's a clear violation of Leviticus 3.17. And none of this needed to happen. None of this should have happened. As, as Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright. 
because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoils of their enemy that they found. But now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. You see, it could have been much better. The victory that Israel could have had against the Philistines was stopped short because of Saul's rash oath. And I want, I want to show two reasons why Saul was wrong, why his oath is rash, and why this is a great warning to us. First, Saul takes the battle way too personally. And second, he never should have placed such a rash oath on the entire army. Let's look at the first one. In verse 24, it said, listen to this. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now contrast that with Jonathan's statement back in 14 verse 6. Remember, he sees the Philistines, and Israel is in turmoil, and he won't respond, and he believes that God will deliver Israel by few or by many. And so he steps out in faith and he attacks them. But he says this in verse 6, Come, let us go to, over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the difference between how Saul acts and how Jonathan acted? Saul is concerned with his own honor. He says, I want to take vengeance against my enemies. His rule and his reign, his land, his opportunity to rule over the Philistine people is being undermined. And he wants personal vengeance. But Jonathan is filled. He's consumed with zeal for the Lord. He wants to see the honor of God defended. He says, these uncircumcised. What does that mean? That means these are not the covenant people of God. These are enemies of God. These are ones who have rejected God's authority over them, have shaken their fist and said, we would rather have our idols. And Jonathan is concerned with defending the honor of God. But Saul is concerned with defending his own honor. The truth is, this is the source of many of our problems, right? It's not about you. Saul was motivated more by personal vengeance than zeal of the Lord. And that leads him to make a foolish oath. The Westminster Confession of Faith, you may not know, was revised over three, over four times in America. First in 1788, and then in 1887, 1903, and finally in 1936. And one of those revisions deleted a sentence from chapter 2 on oaths and vows. And I want to read to you what the Westminster divines wrote and what the American divines removed. And I think it was right what they did. The original states in section 3 of chapter 22, whoever takes an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act and therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Neither may any man bind himself by oath to anything 
but what is good and just and what he believes so to be and what he is able and resolved to perform. Now, this last sentence is the one that was struck from the American version. It says this, Yet is it a sin to refuse an oath touching anything that is good and just being imposed by lawful authority. You see, our divines in America thought that it was not helpful to have this sentence that it would be sin if somebody makes an oath, even if it's lawful, that you have to submit to it because you are under their authority. And you can hear the uniquely American reason behind that, right? We prize freedom and liberty. And part of that is the right to dissent, the right to say no. We will not be taxed without representation, right? We respond when our freedoms are stripped away, largely as they are today. And we surrender them freely without thought. It would have gone quite differently if Saul had said something like this, Lord, I will not eat any food until your honor is avenged and the enemies of your people are defeated. So help me, God. That would have been a wise oath for Saul to take. But instead, he binds all of the consciences of the people of Israel. Cursed be any man who eats of any food until I am avenged of my enemies, until my honor is restored. And you see the arrogance and the pride and the vain glory that attends Saul's rash oath. The problem is Saul, uncomfortable as he is with the things of God, misses the point of an oath and uses it in a way to manipulate God. That wasn't even the Lord. The outcome was solely Saul. Saul probably thought that he was pious, but in the end, he is using religion to try to manipulate God. And thus making him, in the end, no better than uncircumcised Philistines. Saul proves that it is foolish to try to manipulate God. But Saul's oath doesn't just trouble Israel. It troubles his own household. As the episode continues, Saul seems to just double down on his foolishness, making more oaths that lead him to be more and more foolish. And until he's rescued by the people, a rare act as it is, he would have been led to the greatest sin of all, putting to death the Savior of Israel. Saul wants to pursue his enemies. In verse 36, he says, let's us go down by night. This is why we know it's been one day. This is all happening in one day, and now it's, it's nighttime, and he's saying, let us pursue them into the night to plunder them. We got them on the run. Let's continue it. The people are with them. They say, yes, we'll go with you. There's one wise man, the priest. He says, wait a second. Shouldn't we be asking God what he wants us to do? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that and all my oath-making. I had completely forgotten about God. Let's, yeah, let's stop and see what he wants to do, just as a, you know, a token measure. And so he inquires of the Lord. 
But the Lord doesn't answer. The Lord has been silent to Saul. But Saul knows that that's because of sin. He just doesn't know it's his, because of his sin. And throughout this story, the narrator has been drawing our attention back to another story in Israel from Joshua chapter 7. The story of Achan, who troubled Israel and was put to death in the valley of trouble. The valley of Achor. Saul, over and over again, has been troubling Israel. But he doesn't see it. He doesn't see that he's been identified, not with righteous Joshua, but with Achan. And you'll remember that story. They lay siege to Ai and they were defeated. And Joshua humbles himself and falls before the Lord, pleading with him, Why, Lord, were we defeated before the people of Ai? And the Lord said, You fool, stand up. It's because there's sin in your midst. It's because someone has taken the things that were to be devoted to destruction. And so they cast lots, and the man is found. And he is discovered to have buried the plunder in his tent. And so his whole tent, his whole household is destroyed in the wrath of God. And the trouble is removed from Israel and they defeat I. And the narrator of our text is drawing our attention back to that by using the same words. He is troubling Israel. He's troubling his own household. Saul is aching, but he doesn't realize it. He doesn't know that it's him. And so in his bravado, he says, come, you leaders of Israel, let's find out who this sin is in. And they use the process of discerning the Lord's will, which is the Arim and Thumim. These are stones, or as best we can tell, they are stones that were included in the ephod. And they were used to determine God's will. He says, if it is with me or Jonathan, give Urim. But if the guilt is in your people, then give Thumim. And there is some way for them to determine which one the Lord is giving. So we find this outlined in, in the Pentateuch several times. And we know that this is an authorized way for them to determine where the sin lies. But much to his chagrin, Saul is the one who is captured by the lot. And he's thinking, I didn't eat anything. It must have been Jonathan. Let's cast lots again. And then Jonathan is taken. The people are saved. The people escaped from the lot. And Jonathan tells Saul the story about how he had taken some of the honey when he saw it. And his eyes were refreshed. Absolutely, hear him. I will. But thankfully, a rare occasion that proves the depravity of Saul. The people are wiser and intercede for Jonathan. They say, shall Jonathan die? Verse 45, who has worked this great salvation in Israel. Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. And so the people ransomed Jonathan. The people saved the Savior of Israel. And as we reflect on this episode, as we think about what led Saul, why would he continue to make these foolish decisions one after another? As we saw last week, he missed the opportunity 
to see God act by stepping out in faith. He's waiting around for a word from the Lord. And now he binds all of the consciences of the people of God to be faint and weary and unable to respond in the midst of battle. Saul should have learned to be slow to speak. How many of the problems we get into is because we're led ahead by our tongues, by being rash, by not being considering our words and being deliberate about the things that we say. Jesus encountered problems with oaths as well in his day. There, the people are swearing by things that are not really very strong to swear on. They're sort of shading the truth. You know, they have a problem, so they say, I swear by the temple. And that way, just in case their word is not true, they can say, well, I didn't swear by God. It's just a temple. It's stones. And that way you kind of, you get an escape clause. You don't have to speak truthfully. And this is why Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. We are not to shade the truth through our oath-taking. The importance of being slow to speak, of being deliberate, of being thoughtful regarding our word and not taking rash oaths. It's good for us to make promises to the Lord, but we should never be binding somebody else's conscience with the things that we feel God is calling us to obey in. It may have been that Saul felt the Lord calling him not to eat any food, but should he have made that rash oath? No, of course not. Saul was good-intentioned, but it led to trouble. It led to him troubling Israel. It led to him troubling his own household. Interestingly enough, the religious elites of Jesus' day were also good-intentioned. When they crucified the Lord of glory. When they put to death Jesus, the only innocent man who ever lived. But they were well-intentioned. They were trying to purify Israel. They didn't want a sect forming within them, destabilizing and taking away their power. But there was none to intercede for Him because... He was the ransom for us all. The religious elites proved to be following Saul by placing restrictions on the people that they weren't even able to lift themselves. Matthew 23, 4. And in their zeal to be pious, they missed the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, proving ultimately that they don't know the Lord. They're not concerned with the honor of God. They're not concerned with zeal for His house. They're concerned for their own honor. Their own power. Their own ability to determine what is right and wrong. And they don't want somebody coming in and twisting their and teaching something that would be different from their established teaching. The truth is that if you're not intimately acquainted with the gospel then you will twist the law. You will not understand why the law was given. And you will see it as either hideous, something that's to be run from or discredited, or you will use it as a way to earn God's favor. You will either be a legalist, twisting the law to earn God's favor, or you will be something of 
an antinomian, rejecting the law of God, and not seeing that in the law is enshrined the perfect character of a holy God. And that's because of the God. And if you don't understand the great gospel, will twist the law. As Ferguson points out, these are not so much antithetical to each other, the legalists and the antinomian, as they're both antithetical to grace. They don't understand the gospel, and so they twist the law of God. And it's the same with the spiritual disciplines. If they are not used with, in, for the purpose of communion with God, if they are subtly twisted so that we can manipulate God, so we can say, God, I read my Bible reading this morning, and I said my prayers, and I came to church on Sunday. Now you have to do this. You have to act in this way. And we, we miss the point of those things. Seeing and savoring and knowing Jesus. In subtle ways, we twist them so that we can manipulate God. And there is a, a great warning to us here that we should be testing ourselves to see whether we have come to believe that our efforts are tools to get God to do what He want, what we want. Are your prayers saturated with I and me? I, I want to be avenged. I on my enemies. It's so subtle. And you could be using good things, the means of grace, and you could be subtly twisting them for your own purposes, for your honor, not for God's, not for His glory. Because we love God's Word and we love spending time with God in prayer, that's the reason we engage in those disciplines. Because we want to know Him more. We want to experience the grace in which we stand and the love that sent the Son of God who is innocent to die for us. We want to understand and know that love. That propels us to take up the Word of God and say, what have you said concerning yourself and how I should live before you? And that's much different than saying, I need this in my life. I want this. I want to be avenged on my enemies. And I care about my honor, my reputation, and my agenda. And so we take the things of God and we twist them And Saul illustrates well that it is foolish to try to manipulate God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are saddened by the life of Saul, a man who should have known better. And yet, over and over again, we see him making mistakes and foolishly following after his own plans. And and if we're not careful, Father, we can see and look down upon Saul and miss that we make the very same mistakes in our lives. That we subtly use your means of grace as ways to manipulate you. That we make everything personal. That we don't care about your honor and your glory as much as we care about our own. Father, conform us to Christ. Conform us so that we don't want 
the heaven of Christ, but we want the Christ of heaven. That we're not satisfied just with our sins being forgiven, being reconciled to you, having peace, all the benefits. But all of those things are worth nothing if we don't have Christ. Give us a hunger and a passion to know and savor and love Christ more. Not out of an attitude that thinks me and I and what can I, but what can you, how can you gain glory through us and through this church and through our families and our work? How can you get glory? Make that our humble prayer, for we pray it in Jesus' name and amen.